But if you would turn to Luke chapter 4. I've been working my way through the book of Romans. I'm actually teaching that at the prison. And I found it not difficult, but very much to think about just in the first 17 verses. And I've been there for four weeks. There's something about the gospel. There's something about that which has been accomplished for us that I cannot seem and never will, I hope, to unlayer and not see how great the gospel is. From every place. John, in, the gospel, in, in his letter to the Romans, he writes that this is, he's been appointed to preach the gospel of God. This is the gospel, the good news, the glad tidings, that which is brought to humanity, but it originates with God and Him alone. It originates with no man. It originates with none of us in here. It's God who authors and originates the gospel, and because he's the author and the originator of the gospel, he is the one that gives it its power. And that as we trust in every aspect of what the gospel provides for us through his son, we are the beneficiaries, aren't we? We're the ones that step aside or bow down or bend a knee and see and realize that it's God himself that has brought us the good news. And Paul talks about in, in the first chapter of Romans how these are things that were prophesied in Scripture by the Old Testament prophets, all the way from Genesis where it was told to the serpent that one is coming who you are going to bruise his heel, but what's he going to do to the serpent? He's coming to crush your head. That's good news for humanity. That's great news for humanity. So these promises all come through his holy prophets in the Old Testament. And they all are concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I started looking. What Old Testament? You know, we, we, like, all the, we like a lot of promises. We all want promises because that's what we're hanging our eternal state on. We're not hoping vainly. I hope nobody is in here hoping vainly on something that's not true, not real, does not originate with God, and is not backed up by His promise that comes through His Son. But the gospel and all it encompasses is more than what some groups, or even maybe you may have thought of at one time, that the gospel was the birth of Christ, the Son of God, His life, His crucifixion, His burial, His resurrection, and His ascension. And if you place your faith in Him, you get to go to heaven. It encompasses so much more than that. And I think most of us have learned that. That it entails the restoration of all things that were lost. Everything that was lost that humanity had given up by their rebellion. It's that simplicity in Christ that sometimes we all can kind of not block out of our minds, but we begin to fill it with all these high and lofty thoughts and we begin to forget the simplicity that we have in Christ and that we are the ones who are lowly. We are the ones who lack any abilities, any strength, any power to save ourselves. I hope everyone in this room at one point realizes that or has realized that. And that's why you cried out to Him to save you. But in Luke chapter 4, we start in verse... 14. It says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. 
And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your own country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent, except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. And none of them were cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over a cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. and We thank you for the ministry of your son. I ask, Lord, that you would anoint your word to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Jesus, many think at this point, before he actually had entered, and it, it can be shown chronologically, we're not going to go through all that, but he was baptized in Judea, the southern province of Israel. Galilee is way up north. He was baptized by John the Baptist. John's gospel tells us of meeting the woman in Samaria on his way back to Galilee. Some think that he had already, before this point, had been ministering throughout the region for up to a year. Because news had gone out about who he was and what he was doing. And they were amazed, and they, they heard of all these great things, and they marveled. So, we read in verse 14, where we started, it says, And Jesus returns on the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. This story's going really well right now, isn't it? So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So you can picture, here he is <clears throat> in his hometown synagogue. He's some 28 years old at this point. He had been there as a child, learning and listening, sitting there with his family, his aunts and his uncles. Everyone knew him, right? They were all familiar with who he was. They all saw him day to day. But it's his turn to bring the sermon, so to speak. And he's handed the book of Isaiah. In verse 17, it says, And he was handed the book of Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Today, he says, this, this scripture has been fulfilled in their ears. So here's Jesus, the local boy, quoting from an Old Testament messianic prophecy about who the Messiah 
would be and what he was going to do in his mission on this earth, what his purpose was, why he was, why he was sent, why he was anointed. He came and he reads this. And virtually what he's saying, basically what he's saying is, you've been looking and waiting for your Messiah, your Deliverer, the one who would rescue you from all your sin, all your, your burdens, all of your captivity, all of the weight of this world. And he says, basically by saying, the scripture has been filled in your ears, here I am. Here I am. Quit looking any longer to the future. I'm here. It was fair to him to say that, wasn't it? Because that's who he was. He said, I, you, this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. The one you are waiting for, the one you have so expectantly sought after and chose to, to look for intently is now standing in your midst. But his mission is described here, isn't it? And I think about a lot of the Old Testament passages, especially in Isaiah, the Messianic servant songs, they're called, where it describes who they were looking for. Because Jesus came, he was sent, and he was anointed. And every time you and I look at the life of Jesus, every time we consider the words that he spoke, every time we read about a miracle or how he interacted with humanity, how he dealt with this person and that person, widows, the lame, the blind, the poor, the religious elite, we really are seeing the very essence and character of God himself because Jesus came to show us the Father. So everything that he does and the way he ministers to people, the way he interacts with those all around him, he's speaking to us as to who God is and what his character is truly like towards humanity. These people are waiting for a Messiah they're waiting for one who's going to come in flaming vengeance and take out his wrath on the Romans. Destroy Herod. Get rid of that wicked ruler. That's what they're waiting for. The Romans are oppressing them. They're holding them back. They're keeping them from being the people of God. But Jesus never comes that way, does he? He's actually, at this point, as one author would say, in the disguise of a carpenter's son. Can you imagine God disguising himself? Well, for these people, he's in a disguise. They don't recognize him as anything more than who? Joseph's son. So could you imagine Jesus coming in here as a son of a carpenter, standing up and reading a scripture and saying, here I am. And you knew this boy your whole life. What would you do? Come on. Him? You got to sympathize with these people. You got to understand that Jesus is not opposed to these people. Jesus testified to the Pharisees in John 5. He says, "Listen, believe me not for the works I do or for the words or but believe because of the works. I I'm giving you so many witnesses." My works, my words, the Father's testifying of me. There's so many testif testif uh, witnesses to who I am. And he spoke these things that they might be saved. Jesus wasn't out to get the Pharisees. They did that on their own, didn't they? But he comes. And it says that this promised Messiah had a mission. And it says that he was anointed to preach. He was sent to heal. He was sent to proclaim liberty. He was sent to recover. He was sent to liberate. And he was sent to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. 
Now, who's his target audience? Who was Jesus sent to? Because here's the whole key. Who was Jesus sent to? The poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. All those who in our society or their society would have been despised, would have been looked down upon. You and I in our desperate, unregenerate state. The poor, the blind, the captive. These are the ones that Jesus was sent to. These are the ones who he was anointed to preach to. We know Acts 10 tells us in Peter's sermon that Jesus was anointed of God with the Holy Spirit and power and went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil. The good news is great news. That's why you're all looking at me like I'm hitting you with a hose. Now, I understand that for Jesus to stand up and make this statement offends people. It offended his hometown buds. But he came to the poor. He came to preach the gospel to the poor. The poor being those who are destitute, bankrupt. It actually means in the Greek, it means to cringe. It means to have this beggarly countenance where you're just, you're, you're bowed down. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? And it says, the beggar was laid at this man's gate full of sores and the dogs licked his sores. That word beggar is the same word as poor. Was that man destitute? That man had nothing to offer the society. He had nothing to offer anyone. He was bankrupt. He was destitute. He was reduced to being a beggar. When we think of somebody as being poor, as someone who's destitute of any wealth, influence, position, power, or honor. A poor person is helpless and is powerless to accomplish an end. Jesus was anointed to preach to the poor. The poor. Not just those who materially had little or nothing. But as you and I can remember one day, we were spiritually bankrupt. Spiritually bankrupt. That's who he came to preach the gospel to. Jesus started his Sermon on the Mount how? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see the kingdom of God. See, there's something about understanding that even though Jesus Christ came and preached the gospel to the poor, people like us who were spiritually bankrupt and had no means of attaining anything with him, these are the ones that he has given the kingdom to. And even though we may think we've accomplished something or we've attained something, we're still within ourselves poor. We're still the ones in desperate need of what Jesus has to offer. Now, if you don't see yourself as poor anymore, spiritually or otherwise, we're at risk then of becoming like the Laodiceans, who said what? We're wealthy and have need of nothing. When in fact, what did Jesus tell them? His own church he said this to. You don't understand, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus came to the poor the blind and the naked. He's coming to us now as the poor, the blind, the destitute. Second the second category of people he's coming to are the brokenhearted. 
See, none of these, none of these categories are what you want to become, are you? See, we look at this and we go, don't be telling me I'm poor. Don't be getting all over me about my poverty because, oh, uh -uh, man, I got two new cars. And that's about when I'm going to have to tell you you're pretty poor, if that's what you think wealth is. But see, we need to remember we are the poor. Because those are the ones who God draws the nearest to. But he preaches the gospel to the poor, but he heals who? The brokenhearted. We think about brokenheartedness, and we're not talking about some of you young people who, you know, your girlfriend left you. Brokenhearted, to be broken, means to be crushed in pieces. To be crushed to pieces in your heart at the very core of your humanity, in all your thoughts, and all your thinking, all your emotions, things that you've held so dearly to, things that you think you've got a hold of. Maybe it's your circumstances. Maybe it's your job. Whatever it is, maybe it's, it's the life you have right now. Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted, those who were crushed to the core of their being. He came to heal those. Not disregard those and seek out the all-to-dos and got-it-all-together people. The brokenhearted. Those he makes whole. The captives. The next category. The next captives. We think about captives. Here it's talking about one who's been subjugated or under the control of another. It has an idea of being a prisoner of war. Being, ta being taken captive by one more powerful than they are. I don't like that idea at all. You know, it's, 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 it's enough to see somebody in prison. They're there because it's not because they help too many old ladies across the street, I guarantee it. But to be taken prisoner of war and being held captive under the power of another, Jesus came to do what for those people? Set them free. Paul talked about being free. A couple of messages on staying free. And see, here we are in the midst of this day of the acceptable year of the Lord. This age of grace, this day when the gospel is preached. Because Jesus came up short finishing that verse or verses in Isaiah because the next verse was, and the day of vengeance of our God. He left that off. That's coming. That day is coming. We know that. Today is the day of salvation. Now, as we go through this list of people that Jesus was sent to minister to, I have to ask myself and I have to ask you, who are you preaching the gospel to? Are we willing to go to the poor? Are we willing to go and heal the brokenhearted? The captives? The oppressed? Or are they just a bother? Because when I look at the character of God through Jesus, I see God Himself in a man reaching down to the lowest parts of humanity to rescue us daily. Because we still see ourselves as poor and in need. If you would turn over to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. We talk about being taken captive. We talk about actually being born into captivity. We didn't have a choice. We were born into the, the muck and the mire of this world. Was anybody here born in heaven and sent to earth? Nobody here. We were all born in a culture and in a time and in a world that is right now passing away. 
It's full of darkness. It's full of mire. It's full of muck. It's full of all the things that cause us to not see. As we'll get to in a minute about the blind. See God rightly. Jesus comes to set the captives free or proclaim liberty to the captives. In Psalm 107. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Sounds a lot like this congregation. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate place. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. He led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death bound in affliction and irons because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that the men, oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Amen. Does God deal with his people sometimes harshly? Does God sometimes deal with us in a way that brings us down low? Causes us to be humbled. Causes us maybe distress. Causes us to then do what? Cry out to him in our desperation. And what does he do? He steps on us a little harder and says, no, you missed it. You've gone too far. No, he says those in that state, those who in their humility, those who in their crushed, brokenheartedness, they cry out to God. And those are the ones that he delivers. The, pride, the prideful ones are the ones he resists. It's the humble. It's the contrite. It's those, hopefully like you and I, that he draws near to and delivers. But we are to give thanks to God for his wondrous works. When we talk about captivity, Paul in the book of Romans talks about, in chapter 7, about how he felt captive to the law of sin. He felt as if he was trapped, as if he was bound, as if he was in chains. No matter what I do, I'm held captive by the law of sin. But thanks be to God who delivers us from the power and the penalty of sin. So those he came to proclaim deliverance. Then he comes and he preaches and he's sent to recover sight to the blind, back in Luke. Sight to the blind. Both physically and spiritually. I bet you can think of quite a few instances, because they're dramatic instances, aren't they? Where Jesus met blind people. And he healed them. Now, I often look at that and I think... What does that mean to be blind and not be able to see or perceive anything and have Jesus come along and give me a recovery of sight to where now I see clearly everything as it is? Well, that's what he does. He does for us spiritually, doesn't he? He takes us 
poor and blind individuals. And because we are brokenhearted, because we are contrite, because we understand who we are before God, He gives us sight. He opens our eyes. He doesn't open the eyes of those who already see, does He? Because in John chapter 9, where He had opened the man's eyes, who were, He was blind from birth. And He opens the man's eyes. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day have a fit. How dare you make a blind man see on the Sabbath? God's Sabbath is now. God's year of jubilee is now. But he recovers sight to the blind. Well, at the end of John's chapter, in John chapter 9, where he's making the blind to see, he tells them, the Pharisees, he says, I have come that the blind may see and the seeing made blind. I can't imagine hearing those words in my ear and saying, well, but are you calling us blind? If you see, your sin is still with you. Can you imagine people who are so proud, so arrogant, so confident in their lineage, like the, like the Jews, the Pharisees, so confident that they were seeds of Abraham, that they were the Pharisees, that they had the rules down just right, being told that they were blind, and had no sight, and understood nothing. Is that offensive? It was to them. Because just like us, just like the church through the ages, just like our friends in the Baptist church, the Presbyterian church, the Lutheran church. Are there people there? Are there hearts and souls in those places? If one, if one of those people in what we would call as, you know, denominations, if one of those people, because of God's dealing with them, found themselves broken-hearted and contrite before God and crying out to Him, would you be offended if they were filled with the Holy Spirit? Would you be offended if the Lutheran church down the street suddenly had a revival and they were all speaking in tongues and the dead were raised and the lame were made well and the blind saw? Would you be offended? Are you sure? Because we've got it all figured out here. How can they have all that happen? I'll tell you why. Because God is looking for humble, contrite hearts. He's looking for those who understand their total and complete desperate need of Him daily. The day we ever have confidence in ourselves or in our history or in our building or in our creed or in all our doctrines and we begin to boast in those as if they're anything before God and then we see things happen outside this building I think there might be some of you here going why is God moving there? God only is looking for contrite people. He's looking for those who just want Him and His presence. But He gives sight to the blind. You've got to praise God for the sight you have. Not just physical sight. I'm talking the spiritual sight you have. Because there was a day when you walked in darkness. Total and complete darkness. You had no idea what was going on around you other than what the world told you was going on. And now we are the ones who have eyes to see. And yet the Laodiceans 
I mean, we always got to come back to the warnings. The Laodiceans were blind. And the last group is the oppressed or the bruised. It means to be smitten through or shattered, broken by calamity. In Deuteronomy, God said that he brought them into the wilderness. His own people, right? The ones he had delivered from Egypt. He brought them into the wilderness and he caused them to hunger and thirst. And it says that he humbled them by doing this. Well, didn't they have a promise? You know, maybe they should have... They did have a promise. They had a promise that he was their provider, completely and totally. And yet he allowed them to hunger and thirst so that they would be what? Brought low. So that they would know that he was their God and they lived not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I think sometimes we think that being brought low either in a, in a material sense even, but being brought low in our minds or, or, or finding ourselves distressed or, 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 or being kind of feeling brought down low, we're not allowed to be that. There, there's no place in church for anything but... And I'm all for this. Because that's where we will wind up if we're broken and brought low. But sometimes, like James told the group there, listen, you people need to lament and and weep and mourn. You need to humble yourself in the sight of God. And then He will lift you up. There's nothing wrong with times of feeling contrite or broken down or humbled. And I'm not talking about self-pity. Self-pity is not the same thing as humble. It's not the same thing as God bringing us low so that we can now look up, cry out to the one who will then show himself strong. Psalm 34, 18 says this very thing. The Lord is near. You want the Lord near? How do you get the Lord near? And you ever think about that? I started looking at, I had no time to put this all together. But the idea of God being near. As opposed to what? God being far. Right? I mean, you just start thinking about it. What do you mean God is near? How, How do you draw near to God so that he will draw near to you. Same context as humble yourself in the sight of God. There's something about humility. There's something about this place where we find ourselves sometimes, either emotionally or however you want to describe it. It's not a sin. Because it's in these places that he says in Psalm 34, 18, that the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite or crushed spirit. Remember David? King David had an affair with Bathsheba and got himself into a whole world of mess, didn't he? Tried to hide it, had her husband killed. Is that bad stuff? Anybody in here done that? No. That's pretty bad stuff, isn't it? But what does he do when Nathan the prophet confronts him and says, as we all know, you are that man. Well, in Psalm 51, 16, we know that this is how he dealt with it. But it says in verses 16 and 17, it says, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. 
Right? David had done such wrong. What, if, if God, all he required was, you know, if I could bring 10,000 ox and that'll clear it, I'll do that. Right? God's, David's admitting, he's saying, I do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. I do not light, delight in burnt offerings. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. You're confronted with your sin. Maybe there's something in somebody's life that God reveals. You, you're not hiding any longer from it. You're, you're exposed. It's something that confronts you. What do you do? God does not despise a broken spirit or a contrite heart. You come to Him broken what does he do? He saves us. He saves us when we are the most broken, when we are the most crushed. He comes to rescue us. You know, if God was out to get us, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I think sometimes people have this idea that even Jesus was out to kind of get people almost, or set them straight. Or... God's character is to save you and I. It's His great love in sending His Son. If He's not going to spare His own Son, how, how much greater of a love can you show? So His desire is to always save Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the high and lofty one, He who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. Oh, that's our God, isn't it? Oh, He's the high and holy, high, lofty one. He's the one who inhabits all of eternity. I dwell in the high and holy place, but I also dwell with Him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God not only dwells in all of eternity, He's not only the high and lofty one of all creation. He doesn't just dwell in some distant place far too lofty and high for us to ever attain. But he dwells with who? You and I. And back to Luke 4. If you're not still there, I should have told you to put your finger there. Luke 4. It says, and he closed the book in verse 20. And he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. So, so far, it's looking pretty good for Jesus, isn't it? I've, he's read a verse out of Isaiah. He's made a statement that this is being fulfilled right in your ears right now. And at this point, all the eyes in the synagogue are fixed on him. All he's got to say is, you people are really great. Because you have so minutely kept the law, because you are of the seed of Abraham, because you're the chosen ones who had all the covenants of the Old Testament, because, because, because you are the ones I came for. That's not what he says at all, is it? Now all the eyes in the synagogue are fixed on him. Before this, they marveled at his words and they heard so much about him, they were just amazed. In verse 22 it says, So they all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Then they said, Is this not Joseph's son? I'm going to tell you right now. Jesus Christ was the best preacher that ever lived. 
And when he spoke, they had weight. They had authority. They were anointed. They were of the Holy Ghost always because he only spoke what he heard from the Father. And he was given the Spirit without measure. Can you imagine every reverberation coming from his vocal cords was God's Word. Every single word. Did he ever use a non-powerful word? Did he ever make a joke? Did he ever tell a limerick? No! God was here to express... Jesus was here to express the Father to us. And He did so in all of His words and in all of His actions. Every bit of it. Here is the express image and character of God. So all the eyes are on Him and they're all marveling at His gracious words. And then they ask the question, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't that that little kid we used to have in here sometimes and he grew up and now he's, what is this going on? And Jesus, being who he is, knows what they're thinking, doesn't he? Because he responds to what they know, what he knows they're thinking in verse 23. This is his sermon. What a sermon. <laughs> he said, he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard in Capernaum, 20 miles away, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. What's he telling them? He's telling them the same thing he could tell his church today. But what he's telling is a story that they would have been extremely familiar with but really didn't want to hear. Because we're talking about he just got done proclaiming who he was sent to. Right? He was sent to the poor, the captives, the destitute, the blind, those who were oppressed, those who were brokenhearted. Those are the ones he was anointed and sent to by God. And now he's telling them what? Listen, there's no prophet accepted in his own country. So let me tell you a few stories. And he starts out with Elijah and the widow and Zarephath. And we know that God's judgment came upon the land of Israel, right? Elijah declares, listen, no rain to Ahab. No rain for three and a half years. Judgment. You double-minded Baal worshipers. Judgment. Drought upon the land. And I don't know what what you know about drought, but drought brings crop failure. Drought brings dried up brooks and rivers, as Elijah found out. Drought brings famine to a land. Three and a half years of no rain. Everybody's suffering. Everyone. Especially the widows in Israel. You think the widows had some means of Gaining more than everybody else. They were like the bottom of the food chain. God cares about widows, doesn't he? Psalm 68, 5. He's, he's a father of the fatherless and a defender of widows. In fact, James tells us that if you have pure and undefiled religion, in other words, if who you say you are is really valid and true, you're going to do some things, aren't you? You're going to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction. And you're going to keep yourself unspotted from the world. Or your religion is all vain. Wow. So, Elijah, in all this land of famine and drought and suffering, it says here that there was many widows in Israel. 
But to none of them was Elijah sent. That prophet was sent to who? A widow in Zarephath. It's an area where you hear in the New Testament, Tyre and Sidon. You know, it's up in, you know, it's up in that region. I didn't know this, but in a little bit of research, this is the home. This is the area where Jezebel's father's home was. Now, who's Jezebel? Jezebel was married to King Ahab, one of the most wicked kings Israel ever had. And where is God sending the prophet? To a widow outside of Israel, outside of the widows in Israel. He's sending them to some place you and I wouldn't even think of going. I'm not going up there. I'm not going to, to where Jezebel came from. But he goes to a widow. A Gentile widow. And we know the story. She's pretty much destitute, isn't she? At this point, she's got what? A handful of meal, a little bit of oil left, and she's doing what when Elijah finds her? Gathering sticks and making a fire. I'm done. It's over. My life is over. This is all the little bit I've got left. Elijah was sent to who? A destitute widow in a Gentile land that the Israelites and Israel didn't want nothing to do with? And he sends a prophet to this poor widow lady who's got nothing left? Destitute, poor, broken-hearted, crushed, held captive by her circumstances? This is who God sends his prophet to. And then the prophet says, you go make your meal first and then take care of me. And that's not at all what he said, is it? You take that little bit, you make me a cake first. You give me the little bit you have, and you'll have enough for the rest of the time. You give me of your crushed destituteness. You give me that last little bit. You give me, you, you, you give to God the last little bit you have, and the cruise of oil will never run out. And the meal will just keep going. And you know what? When your son dies, he'll even be raised up. So because she was willing to give the last little bit that would sustain her life, she was given life. She was given life out of her death. Now, Jesus is saying, of all the widows in Israel, God sends his prophet to this one. A Gentile, destitute, widow in an area that we normally wouldn't go to. And then in verse 27 of Luke, he says, And many lepers were in Israel in time of Elisha, the prophet. And none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And we all know that in the Old Testament, lepers, even in New Testament times, lepers were outcasts, weren't they? Yeah, you know, I just I despise, I want nothing to do with lepers. He was not only a leper, but he was a Syrian. And if you read the story in 2 Kings 5, he's a Syrian. He's a commander-in-chief of a nation who all the time were just coming into Israel and raiding them and plundering them, taking from them. Killing! And on one of these raids, they take a young girl, it says. Somebody's daughter. They take a young girl. And this young girl becomes a servant in Naaman's house to help his wife. And what does this young girl do when she finds out Naaman has leprosy? If you can find the man of God, God will make you well. Are you kidding me? This guy's an enemy. This girl has been taken from her homeland and now is taken and is captive by us. 
And she's the one saying, God will heal you of your leprosy. We all know that he goes down in all his pomp and circumstance. I'm commander-in-chief. I'm going down to see the prophet. Prophet doesn't even come out of his house. Prophet sends out his little servant boy. Go dip into Jordan seven times. You'll be well. I'm not doing that. He got mad. Who do you think? We've got cleaner rivers where I come from. Why? Uh-uh. No, I'm not, I am not going to humble myself to that degree. And yet his servant says, listen, wouldn't it be better to dip in the muddy Jordan and be clean? You see how God deals? You see what Jesus is saying to these people? I'm sent to those who understand their destitution, their absolute Poverty, their absolute need of me. These are the ones I am near to. These are the ones I've been sent to. Well, Naaman dips and he gets well, doesn't he? But he uses a captive girl from Israel to give him the good news. I can imagine if one of us was that captive girl, we'd go, you know what? You can die of your leprosy for all I care. I'm serious. That's the wrong spirit, isn't it? But how many of us in the flesh would almost want to think that way? That's not how God is. God is looking to the most corrupt, destitute, poverty-stricken, broken-hearted people held in bondage and captivity and are so oppressed. These are the ones He's looking to. This is why men go to Countries that are poor because they're more receptive, it seems, to the gospel. They understand their needs. We in America don't have any needs, do we? We do. Oh, we're probably in more need than those in Guatemala or anywhere else. Because when I was in Guatemala and I saw people doing manual labor and doing things that I could... And they're smiling and having a good time. And I'm going, Lord, there's more to life than America. I heard a man preaching. And he was talking about there's more divorce. You know, back in the day, there there was more divorce in the middle class than there was among slaves. There, there There was... more suicide among the well-to-do than there were among slaves. That doesn't make any sense. Slaves are what? Bound? Destitute? But what are they always doing? They're looking up. They're looking up. So he tells them these two stories. Stories I'm sure they hated to hear. Stories that told them what? Told them that God sends his prophet. God sends his messenger. God preaches the message of salvation not to those who don't need it because they're basing their right standing with who they are how long they've been going to that synagogue, how much money they put in the box, how much tithes they've given. That's their righteousness. God didn't come to save those, did He? He came to save people like you and I. The weak, the despised. 1 Corinthians 5, how many noble here among you? I don't see anybody raising their hand. How many wise? You know, I mean, think about it. We are the despised that are chosen by God. Why? 1 Corinthians 5, so that the glory will be of Him. He's the one who takes that which is not and makes it something. 
It says that he takes that which is nothing and makes it something for his glory and his glory alone because no flesh will glory in his presence. Zero flesh will glory in his presence. This is all about God and his gospel. This is all about the rescue of us who were held captive by one more powerful than us. And it will always be that. Today, this afternoon, tomorrow, it's always going to be about us living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Naaman, a Syrian, an enemy of Israel, one who raids and plunders, attacks and kills, a leper, He's an outcast of all outcasts. And God is willing and does heal him. So what do they hear in their ears? What are they hearing when Jesus preaches this sermon? They're hearing that this widow, a Gentile widow at that, God is willing to save before us. You know, there is nothing worse in this world, I think, than spiritual pride or religious assumptions or self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, anything that takes away from the power of God in our lives. Any amount of that. Verse 28 of Luke. So all those in the synagogue... There's no parade happening here, friends. All those in the synagogue, these are the ones that we just heard what their, all their eyes were on him. They marveled at the gracious words. They loved everything he said. They knew it had weight. They've heard about all his miracles. And they hear two stories. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. I can't imagine that. I, I just can't imagine that. That you could be so enraged by a man's words because they convict you so and challenge you and knock out your legs from under you and leave you in a place where all you thought you were, like Nicodemus, the Pharisee, everything you thought and held on so dearly to, religiously and spiritually, is just cut out from under you. And you're now told, you're nothing. God sends His prophet sends his messenger, sends his word to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to the captives. Not to you. So those who do not see their spiritual need are not brokenhearted. They're not understanding of what they really, that they are really a prisoner to sin. They're blind and unable to see the truth. Self-confident, self-righteous, having no need of a Savior, will die in their sins and face judgment in hell. I hope there isn't a soul in this room that thinks somehow, some way, in their own religious effort, that you're going to make it because you're blind. As we read in Psalm 34, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. I still think the warning applies to his church through the ages, as it was to Laodicea, as it was to others, to us as a church, to us as individuals. We can never allow ourselves to think we've ever arrived in any way, shape, or form and place our confidence in how many years we've met here, how many good deeds we've done, 
how much money we've put in the box. All these are good. But God owes you nothing because you did that. You're still the needy one. We are still the ones who need to be contrite in spirit. We are the ones who come before God and sometimes all we can do is praise him for who he is and what he's done. Final verse is Isaiah 66. Turn there if you'd like. Isaiah 66. Among many verses that talk about God rescuing, saving, and being near those who are humble. Those who understand that their distress is in life and they're sometimes feeling beaten down and low is the time when he draws the nearest. In Isaiah 66 and verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made. And all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. So be it for all of us to be like that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your nature and your character is to save us, is to deliver us, is to heal us. And that as we come before you as the God of all creation, we come before you humbly. And we thank you for the great promise that we have through your Son. I pray, Lord, that if there be any pride or self-righteousness within any of us, that it would be exposed, that we might be brought low, that you may then draw near to us, deliver us, and save us. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that dwells with us and in us. Pray for your blessing to be upon each one of us as we leave here today. May we give thought to your wondrous message. May we give thought to who you are and how you relate to us as your people. Father, we are those who need you. And we lift our eyes to you. And we give you praise. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.